been living under a corporate state autocracy, whether the Democrats or Republicans, but Trump has come along. He's taken it to a new level of American fascism. He's unleashed the worst, ugliest forces in our country that were sort of under the surface because they didn't have a champion who got press every day and who had tweets every other minute. So yes, the threat of American fascism is very real, very perilous time. As far as how people vote, I say to people, vote your conscience. That's Ralph Nader, and this is Alternative Radio. I'm David Barsamian. This edition of AR features Ralph Nader on corporate autocracy, fascism, Trump, and the election. Corporate power is more concentrated now than ever before. The rich are significantly richer. And the poor? Well, they know their place. There's an odor of fascism in the air. FDR once warned, the liberty of a democracy is not safe if the people tolerate the growth of private power to a point where it becomes stronger than their democratic state itself. That, FDR said, in its essence, is fascism. You can hardly turn on the radio or TV or go online these days and not hear or read the sentence, this is the most important election in American history. In response to the current crises, note the plural, we can moan and groan or we can act. The task for concerned citizens is what it always has been. Organize at the grassroots, resist oppression, and put forth positive alternatives. Our guest today is Ralph Nader, the son of Lebanese immigrants. He grew up in Connecticut. He's a legendary figure who has spent a lifetime fighting on behalf of ordinary people. The Atlantic named him one of the hundred most influential figures in U.S. history. At age 90, he's as active as ever. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much, David. Well, Joe Biden's been in the White House for three years. What's your assessment of the 46th president? Uh, foreign and military policy, terrible, with capital letters. He's bloated the military budget. He's expanded the reckless, illegal armed force use of the empire. He doesn't seem to obey any international law. He's blanket, unconditional support for the Israeli genocide in Gaza, now viewed as such by the International Court of Justice, in addition to all the eyewitnesses of accounts of the horrific slaughter of civilians, women, children, elderly, doesn't matter. All civilian targets have been hit in one way or another, and 2.3 million people, most of them are huddled down in the south without any housing, having fled at Israeli orders from the north to safe areas in the south, and then attacked again in acts of unspeakable treachery and sadism. And Joe Biden is supporting all this. He keeps saying, well, you should, uh, Netanyahu, minimize civilian casualties and let more humanitarian trucks in. But he's shipping munitions on ships and airplanes 
day after day to contradict his rhetoric, his sweet talking. And so he has turned our country under international law into a co-belligerent with, with Israel, uh, which uh, is violating all kinds of international laws, including, I might add, something that Biden knows full well, that when a country moves into another area uh, outside its borders and starts destroying people and things, they are required to protect the civilian population. And, of course, the Israeli military is doing just the opposite. It's destroying the civilian occupants and leaving them at the victims of disease, no water, no food, no medicine, no electricity, no fuel, no shelter, no ambulances, no hospitals, no health clinics. And Joe Biden is knee-deep, and to make matters worse, he wants to pass a genocide tax and make the American people pay another 14 plus billion dollars to Netanyahu for his incredible defense blunder and collapse on October 7th, which is viewed as uh, enough to get him out of office by 85 percent of the Israeli people in recent polls. UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres has said October 7th did not happen in a vacuum. Uh, the media here in the United States in particular has been uh, less than stellar, if I could say that, uh, in terms of providing no context, no history, and no background as to the origins of the conflict and what might have spurred Hamas to attack on October 7th. That's true. If you read a, a thousand articles in the Washington Post, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, they always have the obligatory paragraph that this war started on October 7th when the Hamas went over the border with other groups and took uh, a thousand or so Israeli lives, most of them civilians, but still over 200 soldiers. And that's their starting point. Instead of 1948, when David Ben-Gurion, in a later interview with uh, the head of the World Zionist Organization, David Goldman, said it was their land and we took it. They weren't going to indulge the rights of the indigenous Palestinians coming out of the Nazi Holocaust. And David Ben-Gurion is the founder of modern Israel, the first prime minister. That's when you could start. And then there's all the massive attacks over the years on the Palestinians, the occupied, water stolen, land stolen, smashed houses, seizing hostages, putting them in jail as uh, hostages for controlling Palestinian extended families, uh, embargoes, you name it, checkpoints everywhere, suppression, separating children from families, barricading different areas in the West Bank. That's where you want to start. But you'll notice, even today, pick up the paper. Any article on Gaza starts with October 7th. So this is a the kind of discussion should go on in Congress. Congress, like a toady, it's a ditto head of, along with Biden, of Netanyahu. I'm sure if Biden privately talks to Netanyahu and says things that are tougher, Netanyahu just says to him, well, 
Joe, why don't you take this up with our Congress? He controls the Congress, like 95% of the votes. Do you mean literally he controls the Congress? Yeah, of course. He has APAC. He has uh, all kinds of other uh, allies. The uh, defense industry is on his side because there's a lot of business there. A lot of that $14.3 billion will come back in terms of contracts for more uh, tanks, more F-16s, more deadly missiles, maybe phosphorus, maybe cluster bombs. Who knows? It's all secret. And uh, Congress is not asked to approve it. Biden does it unilaterally after he gets the $14.3 billion. And it's okay with the vast majority of the Republicans and Democrats, with a few exceptions. So it's quite clear that no matter how many demonstrations, marches, public opinion uh, demanding ceasefire, demanding cessation of uh, military aid to Israel, using it for offensive purposes and violation of human rights, no matter that all over the country we have Jewish Americans, we have Arab Americans, we have African Americans, we have regular Anglo-Saxon Americans. It's a tremendous coalition that dominates dissent in the streets, but the power structure dominates the policy in the congressional suites and in the White House. And you know who wins in that contest because we're not really a democracy, in fact. How would you respond to the often quoted uh, Israeli remark that all states have a right to defend themselves, and that's what we're doing as a result of October 7th? Well, I have two responses. One is, uh, do Palestinians have a right to defend themselves? I've never heard that uttered on Capitol Hill on the floor. I've heard Israel has a right to defend itself thousands of times. So... All states have a right to defend themselves. The question with Israel, when it says it has a right to defend itself, is what's itself? What's its boundaries? It doesn't recognize normal boundaries because it wants to dominate all of Palestine, including the West Bank and and Gaza. And in fact, uh, by international lawyers, it's viewed as occupying both of those because the embargo is essentially an occupation of Gaza, and of course they've got soldiers all over the place in the West Bank. So what what does defend itself mean? And who started it? The West, after World War II, facilitated the partition of Palestine and proceeded to topple all kinds of regimes uh, in favor of dictatorships. The Shah of Iran was reinstalled after the democratically elected prime minister was removed by CIA operatives. That's a matter of record. I think it was 1953. And then there was a dictatorship by the Shah for 29 years. And we we got along very well with dictators uh, oppressing their people in the Arab countries. And we're all over their backyard. And why are we uh, surprised when there's a little resistance? I guess you can't resist uh, U.S. empire and the Israeli regional empire uh, that, that's verbatim. You can't resist. Of course, uh, we resisted King George III for an occupation that was uh, tepid compared to what the Palestinians have been going through. So that's one of the markers of empire. It demands no resistance, complete obedience, complete suppression. And if there is resistance, the 
response is massively disproportionate in terms of deaths, injuries, and destruction of civilian property. Look what we did after 9-11. We toppled the regimes in Iraq and Libya. We blew apart a lot of Afghanistan. Talk about disproportionate use of force. Uh, the Israelis are masters of this, especially in the current genocide in Gaza. And that's another war crime, another violation of international law. All this is going to come out after the end of this latest battle. Uh, the Israeli press will do its investigations. The refuseniks will perform their dramatic acts of courage and conscience. And uh, Netanyahu will be voted out. Even his own party doesn't want him anymore. It's all going to come out, the videos, the various hearings that will come out, but it'll be too late for hundreds of thousands of Palestinian innocent civilians. The Guardian reports that a review of internal State Department documents shows special mechanisms have been used by the Biden administration to shield Israel from U.S. human rights laws. What are those mechanisms? Well, one of them is uh, not to have any uh, hearings at the State Department and not to put out any reports, because they, they put out annual reports on a lot of countries under their human rights framework of definition, and they protect Israel in, in that area. Secondly, there are no congressional hearings on it. The Israeli peace advocates and the Palestinian peace advocates have never been invited to a Senate or House hearing since 1948. And a lot of these Israeli peace advocates are former generals, mayors of cities like Haifa, former ministers of justice, and former heads of the equivalent of the Israeli FBI and CIA. They were outspoken in Israel. There's a documentary on the latter uh, two former heads of uh, uh, the Israeli CIA and FBI, and they've never been invited. Uh, and, of course, any of the dissenters in Congress, there's always about 15 of them, uh, they've never been able to get any hearings, never been able to get general accounting office investigations of how Israeli aid escapes the charge of human rights violation or use for offensive purposes. Big cover-up. Israeli CIA is Mossad, and its FBI is called Shin Bet. Now, there's a handful of women, mostly, in Congress, in the House, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Cory Bush, Ilhan Omar, Rashida Tlaib, and as I said, a handful of others who have stood up to the Biden administration and have been targeted by death threats and vilified and been the subject of you know vitriol and very, very nasty comments. How about those women who have stood up? Well, they've been very courageous and they've been consistent. Their numbers have not multiplied very much. There are now about 70 members of the House who are calling for ceasefire. That started with uh, AOC and Rashida Tlaib and other women who you mentioned. So they are increasing their numbers, at least for a ceasefire. But Biden's against the ceasefire. He wants minimizing civilian casualties and more humanitarian aid, but he's against the ceasefire, right? You can't have both. 
those trucks are going to come in with rockets and missiles all over the place, rutted roads. They're not going to reach their destination, even the few that are being allowed in. We're seeing here mass deliberate starvation. Someone called it a slow-motion massacre. This is the Palestinian Holocaust. There's no other word for it. It's the irony of tragic history that the successors of the Jews in Western Europe, who were the victims of the Nazi Holocaust, their successors and the successors of their successors are now committing a Palestinian Holocaust. Over half a million Gazans out of the 2.3 are in the stages of starvation and dehydration now, and there's no light at the end of the tunnel. The chair of the Global Health Department at the University of Glasgow gave an interview in The Guardian about a month and a half ago, and she said, if this continues, over half a million Gazans will die in 2024 out of 2.3 million, and the rest will be damaged for life. They will have physical damage, horrendous mental illness, little children. Imagine 60,000 missiles, bombs, not counting artillery on the ground, not counting snipers, and the rest will also be sick in a whole variety of ways. You can't go on a piece of bread and a piece of cheese every two days and not damage your health for the long term, or contaminated water leading to dysentery and the damage to children of that. That's life-threatening, and if they survive, they're going to be sick for a long time. And, of course, Netanyahu wants to drive them completely out of Gaza into Jordan and Egypt, and that is how it's going to play out at the present time. With the co-polligerent Joe Biden, in our name, in our tax dollars, doing the bidding of someone who is the Prime Minister of Israel and is under 20% favorable in the polls. Over 80% of the people can't stand them. They want them out. But they're locked in under Israeli parliamentary law as long as the extreme small parties that make up his coalition don't break loose and the government falls and there has to be new elections. But as of now, that's not likely to happen. Comment on propaganda and the uses of language uh, in this conflict as well as others. I'm thinking particularly of a a phrase that I'm sure you've heard multiple times, Iran-backed, Iran-linked, Iran-supported, Iran-proxy, Iran-controlled. seems that uh, Iran is being singled out for every single malfeasance in the entire Middle East. That's because the U.S. militarists have singled out Iran as part of the axis of evil under Bush, along with Iraq and North Korea. And so Iran has been infiltrated, attacked by the Israelis, attacking scientists, uh, surgical strikes inside Iran. Uh, And they look uh, to their west and they, they see what happened to Iraq. They see the military on their west, the U.S., They see on the east, uh, until the U.S. got out of Afghanistan, the U.S. military, they see themselves targeted in all kinds of ways. And and we wonder why they want proxies. They want some distance from their border and supporting groups in in Iraq and in Syria and Lebanon. I mean, who are we kidding? What if the shoe was on the other foot? 
and we had some huge power doing that to us. <laughs> you, you think we, we'd be watching the ball games and uh, talking about Taylor Swift? Are you kidding? This is why Marine General Smedley Butler, who is a double recipient of the Congressional Honor, wrote his book, War is a Racket. It's, it's a total racket. And it isn't just the pro-Israeli government can do no wrong lobby in the U.S. It's also Lockheed Martin, Raytheon, Boeing, and all the weapons manufacturers who are making huge profits from the militarization of the U.S. empire abroad and its weapons systems to countries like Israel. Well, you never hear the term, for example, you know, U.S.-backed Egypt or U.S.-linked and uh, U.S.-supported Morocco. Those terms don't come into play at all. Not at all. In fact, we, most people don't know we have 36 military installations in the Middle East. 36. They're in Syria, Iraq. They're in Jordan. They've got huge uh, U.S. arsenals inside Israel that are being used now to destroy children, women, elderly, sick, innocent, adults, civilians, have nothing to do with Hamas. That's what's going on. As far as foreign and military policy, if we were a dictatorship, the people in this country would not have any less influence on the military-industrial complex, Congress, the Pentagon, the security agencies, and the White House. The people in this country, no matter how they protest, and there were huge protests, you remember, before the Iraq invasion, all over the world, but all over the United States, uh, didn't have any impact on Bush and Cheney, the war criminals who are living the life of Riley now, after one million Iraqis or more have been were, were killed, and the country blown apart in what experts call a mass so sociocide to this day. What about uh, those who equate criticism of Israeli state policies being labeled as anti-Semites? The most powerful anti-Semites today are against the Arabs of Palestine. There is another anti-Semitism that Jim Zogby of the Arab American Institute in Washington, he gave a lecture to an Israeli university some years ago called The Other Anti-Semitism. It's against Arabs with armed force, not just rhetoric, number one. There's a lot of anti-Semitism against Arab Americans. There is almost there is also a civil debate which you can uh, listen to on debatingtaboos.org between two prominent Jewish Americans and two prominent Arab Americans on the question: Is there more anti-Semitism against Arab Americans in the U.S. than there is against Jewish Americans? And it was a very civil debate, and people flocked to that website debatingtaboos.org, to get an example of a civil debate. Now, when you criticize a government armed to the teeth that is exploiting and occupying and devastating Palestinian territory, what's left of the original Palestine is uh, about 22%. The rest is Israel. You are criticizing that state. You're not criticizing that religion. The American Council of Judaism for almost 80 years has been trying to draw the distinction between Judaism and the state of Israel, and uh, they've gotten very little attention. 
Now, there is anti-Semitism against Jews everywhere, as there always has been. But the Jews in the United States have never been more secure by their own admission. And the leadership now in our country against the genocide in Gaza is led by Jewish-American groups. If not now, Jewish Voice for Peace, they've raised the strategy of civic protests, nonviolent to new levels of, of expertise. Uh, I really have to admire how they've raised the quality of these demonstrations and the strategic location, Grand Central Station, Statue of Liberty, members of Congress, offices, and so on. So you accuse them of being anti-Semitic. It's become a defamatory phrase, and it dilutes the horrific anti-Semitism in Nazi Germany to dilute it and say that anyone who criticizes uh, the slaughter in Gaza is anti-Semitic against Jews is to dilute it and to weaken the meaning of serious anti-Semitism coming out of World War II. Now, on December 13th, the New York Times, there was an open letter printed by 17 Israeli human rights groups led by Beth Salem, including the Refusenik soldiers, including rabbis for human rights. And it was an open letter titled, Stop the Human Catastrophe in Gaza. Open letter to Joe Biden. And it got almost no coverage. Are these groups anti-Semitic? They went after Netanyahu from A to Z in that letter. You're listening to Ralph Nader on corporate autocracy, fascism, Trump, and the election. This is Independent Alternative Radio. For copies of this program, just call us 1-800-444-1977. Again, that's 1-800-444-1977. Or go online our website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. The focus on the Gaza and Ukraine wars has put the climate emergency on the back burner. 2023 was just the hottest year in recorded history. Glaciers continue to melt. Ocean temperatures are rising, as are sea levels. The last COP conference, that's conference on the parties, uh, environmental groups, countries, uh, was in Dubai, an oil producer. And the next one is to be in Azerbaijan, another autocratic oil producer. It's like putting arsonists in charge of the fire department. Well, you, you, you've described uh, the scene. The scene can only be called omnicidal. Uh, there are at least five major omnicides in our midst. The nuclear, chemical, biological warfare capabilities that can destroy the world as we know it, the viral and bacterial pandemics, which we're not prepared for, and we're messing with the environment to make this more likely and more mutationally rapid, uh, ahead of our medical responses, small as they are. We have the climate violence on the side that is apparent in uh, record floods, droughts, tornadoes, 
hurricanes, wildfires, sea level rises, and as you say, temperatures, that's another omnicide. And then we have the, the poverty, the desperation omnicide that uh, is going to lead to mass migrations and all kinds of instabilities. And then we have the elected dictatorships, which have paralyzed responding to the aforementioned omnicides. Why don't we pay attention? Because we spend, as a world, trillions of dollars on weapons, and we're armed to the teeth, and that's what's profitable to the corporate supremacists to control our country and other countries, including governments. And uh, we're not paying attention to the necessities of the people. Uh, so it, it's the usual but very prescient reference to President Eisenhower's warning about the military-industrial conflict. And he warned about it not just economically. He warned about it in terms of its displacing domestic necessities and that it's going to deprive us of our liberty. He used that word in his famous farewell address. So the challenge for the American people is not just to diagnose the problem, but to say, what institution can turn this around? Answer, the Congress. It has the constitutional authority on budgets, taxes, war declaration, waging peace, nominating officials, investigating the executive branch and influencing state and local government. And there are only 535 people. They put their shoes on every morning the way we do. They want our votes more than they want corporate money. And if we target our votes, if we summon them to town meetings made up of citizen agendas controlled by the citizen back in public auditoriums for the senators, representatives, to be instructed and to answer questions without flax and intermediaries. We do all that. We can start getting things turned around pretty quickly. Remember, the Vietnam War dragged on year after year after year. But the protest reached such a critical point that Congress cut off the Nixon continuation of the Vietnam War by cutting off the money. They just said no more appropriations. So Congress has the power, has the authority in the Constitution, doesn't like to use it. It loves to give the war-making power to the presidency and the appropriations uh, budget power to the presidency because it doesn't want the responsibility. But we're going to give it the responsibility. And that's what all these demonstrations on so many issues, climate in this country, Israel, uh, devastation of Palestine, all these and more have got to not just generate energy into the ether on a weekend, march, and demonstrations. got to focus on every member of Congress. Well, we start out with at least 25% of the Congress on our side on all of these issues. So that's a good start. And But people, when they're marching, should have pictures of their senators and representatives holding them up. They should raise money to start... Uh, staffing full-time lobbies right next to Congress. Uh, but, uh, no, you know, the demonstrations uh, come off and they leave some scattered debris around, and uh, it doesn't have that much effect. 
They've got to complete the loop onto Congress and state legislatures. Let's talk about uh, immigration. Uh, Your parents and mine were immigrants to this country. Today, many thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands are making their way to the southern, southern border, seeking entry to the United States. What kind of immigration policy would you like to see? Well, first, you, you stop uh, the U.S. over the decades uh, from supporting dictatorships and oligarchs that exploit their people so they can't even make a living for their families. And they look north and they say, look, we can't have democratic societies apart from Costa Rica, for example. Uh, and it's because of the Yankees uh, up north and their Marines down in our midst and their support of uh, the oligarchs. So we we better, uh, if you can't beat them, join them. And they head north over the Rio Grande. Uh, that's where the problem starts. Most people don't want to leave their native lands and their native families. Uh, they're, they're desperate. They're forced to. Uh, and uh, the blunders and, and the corruption and the cruelty of U.S. policy south of the border has produced endless books and documentaries, and it's still going on. The U.S. empire started with the Monroe Doctrine heading south. That's number one. The second is, of course, we have to control our borders. They're smuggling. They're, there's pollution. There's uh, contagious diseases from desperate people that haven't been uh, given medical treatment. Uh, there are criminal elements, obviously, uh, gangs with drugs and cartels spilling over because we, uh, we don't decriminalize uh, these drugs and develop health care for people who are uh, overcome with these substances. Uh, of course, we have to control the border, uh, but we're not doing it the right way. And, uh, and we haven't had an updated immigration uh, law for a long time because uh, of differences between the Republicans, Democrats, and the desire by the Wall Streeters for cheap labor. Uh, they love open borders. Uh, so it's a complex uh, thing. And uh, I, I would hope that uh, the change in policy and supporting democratic forces in South America, and there are plenty of democratic forces to be supported. Sometimes they uh, elect presidents like Lula of Brazil. Uh, it's not like we're starting with barren ground. But we just can't resist supporting the military, training the militarists, soldiers in camps in the U.S., as you've related over the years, David. Uh, So that's what we have to do. We we, we have to uh, uh, make sure that the right of asylum is staffed with enough courts and enough uh, immigration staff so these cases can be processed quickly. And we've got to be very humane about it with the children uh, and avoid these teenagers coming in and then being exploited in meat and poultry plants or on tomato uh, agribusiness farms mercilessly uh, and dangerously child labor because they're afraid to speak out and 
there's no protection by the state governments. Um, let's move on to the Supreme Court. Uh, given the Supreme Court's makeup, is there any chance to roll back Citizens United, the infamous court ruling that equated money with free speech? Not a chance with the 6-3 right-wing majority. But there's another way to do it, and I'm surprised that the reform groups on our side don't pay attention to it. Almost all these corporations do business with the federal government. They all have to sign contracts. The federal government is the consumer. We always like to say the consumer is always right. They buy almost everything we buy, plus missiles and other uh, stuff that we don't buy. And all they have to do is say that you cannot bid for business with Uncle Sam if you give money to members of Congress and to uh, elected officials in the White House. Now, that was a, a simple ordinance that, that passed in four Southern California states, cities rather, years ago, including Santa Monica. They basically said you can't do business with the town if you're paying for the people who uh, decide who gets funded and who gets the contracts. And, and uh, that is perfectly constitutional. It's a contractual requirement. And it, it leaves me speechless that groups like Common Cause, Public Citizen, People for the American Way, and other good government groups don't make that a priority. Okay, so, you know, the Republicans are going to be against it. But there were times in the last years since Citizen United when the Democrats controlled both houses. So what was the excuse there? There's a lot of things that can be done by progressive groups that aren't being done, David. A lot of them are getting bureaucratized. They lower their expectation levels. They follow the Democratic Party slavishly. They don't push the Democratic Party. And before they know it, uh, they've been uh, neutralized by their own allies in Congress who don't like to be pushed. Russell Muhyber, in a front-page story in Capitol Hill Citizen, writes, Corporate crime cases hit new low under Biden. Where are, he asks, the congressional hearings? Good question. There was one short one that in the Senate Judiciary Committee that was written up by the editor of the Capitol Hill Citizen, which is our new newspaper, very popular around the country. It's in print only. People love it. They can get copies uh, by going to capitalcitizen.com. Uh, they read it in the old-fashioned way, holding it in their hands. They're not distracted uh, and overcome with all the uh, stuff on the Internet when they're trying to read the news. And uh, we're trying a fresh experiment. Anyway, in the forthcoming issue... The answer to your question is, there was a, a short hearing, about a day or so, and it didn't go anywhere. And the editor criticized it in, in a front-page uh, story in the forthcoming Capitol Citizen. I also have a front-page article, uh, which is titled, Collectively, Congress as a Weapon of Mass Destruction, with Multiple Warheads. All the things that Congress collectively, there are exceptions, who they've destroyed peace in the world. They've destroyed a progressive tax system. They're destroying Medicare as we see it, outsourcing it to 
private health insurance companies who deny benefits and overcharge uh, millions of elderly people, deceptively lured into it. They have destroyed consumer protection. They have destroyed uh, the resiliency of nature and climate by siding with the fossil fuel corporations. They have, they have destroyed the rights of labor by freezing the federal minimum wage, can you imagine, at $7.25 an hour. They, they are engines of mass destruction overseas, Bush and Cheney, destruction of Iraq, Hillary Clinton, the butcher of Libya, which uh, Barack Obama persuaded by her to destabilize that country into chaos and violence to this day, called his worst, his worst foreign policy decision. Uh, we, we have uh, had a Congress collectively, uh, in so many ways, it's been a weapon of mass destruction, using the sovereign power of the people against the people themselves. And so we're the people to organize back home. 535 members, folks, senators and representatives, about a quarter of them, or a fifth of them, are on the side of progressive agendas, folks. Why aren't you organizing? Why aren't you having your town meetings and summoning them? They'll come if you have 500 or 700 signatures on a petition with emails and occupations clearly written and legible. They'll come. And uh, you don't know your own power, people. Uh, you remember the Constitution started uh, not with we the Congress. It didn't start with we the corporation, did it? It started with we the people. And the corporation and company are never mentioned in the entire Constitution as presently amended. Why do they control us? Because we let them control us. We let them control us as workers, as consumers. We let them control us as taxpayers. We let them control us as voters. We let them control, to control us as citizens. It's time we've got to look uh, ourselves in the mirror because... The omnicides are coming. Some of them are already in our midst. Look what happened when we weren't prepared for COVID-19 with the crazed president trying to deny it for critical weeks, which led to hundreds of thousands of preventable deaths, according to health studies. So I like to always complete your questions, David, not with a diagnosis, but having people have a sense of their own power, it never takes more than 1% of the people in congressional districts, that's two and a half million adults, to make monitoring and redirecting Congress a full-time hobby or a part-time hobby, you know, 10 hours a week. That's what a hobby, a serious hobby often takes. Coordinated with full-time watchdog offices, three, four people full-time in each congressional district. And that can be done. We don't spend enough time on Congress, to put it mildly, than the players of bridge spend in a week with their bridge clubs and their bridge contacts. Or bird lovers spend watching birds, which is a great uh, vocation, healthy vocation. I wish we had similar time and energy watching Congress. We've written all this up, how to influence Congress. We put out manuals. And uh, I've tried to write a lot of articles. I've had a 
column since 1971. You can go to nader.org and get it electronically free. But, you know, we can only go so far. It's up to the people to have a higher estimate of their own significance. Their families are at stake. Their children are at stake. Silicon Valley, Facebook, Meta, Instagram, TikTok, they've abducted uh, most of our children five to seven hours a day, separating them from family, community, nature, into some virtual reality, gulag, metaverse. I mean, they're breaking up the family, these corporations, direct marketing to kids, undermining parental authority. You know, I mean, how much provocation do we need? My sister's written a book called uh, You Are Your Own Best Teacher, addressing youngsters trying to spark their curiosity, imagination, and intellect, and liberating themselves, thinking for themselves with those marvelous traits they have that are being suppressed by the internet, iPhone, or tablet connection every day. And uh, we can't get social studies teachers to pick it up. We're trying to get extracurricular work so that the students can have roundtables and discuss these 54 topics that my sister Claire has put before them. And they're very provocatively relevant to their lives and to their preparation for young adulthood. All kinds of tools. We have a lot of problems we don't deserve in this country, but we have a lot of solutions that are on the shelf because we've created this democracy gap by not getting engaged from the local to the state to the national to international. One percent representing public opinion, and there's a lot of left-right support for living wage, universal health insurance, breaking the crooked corporate crime, rip-off people and prosecuting them, new, new kind of tax system, reducing the bloated, corrupt military contracting budget, you name it. 82% of the Republicans are against Citizens United. How about that one? So we've got a divide-and-rule control system by the Republicans and Democrats trying to paint us as irrevocably a red state, blue state, conservative, liberal, partisan. That goes back thousands of years, that kind of divide-and-rule. Robert Weissman of Public Citizen says, I'm quoting, We're facing an authoritarian threat like none other in American history, and an election that may well decide the fate of American democracy, unquote. Do you share his worry? And if so, do we vote for Biden then? Well, I do share his view of the threat. You know, the, we've been living under a corporate state autocracy, whether the Democrats or Republicans, but Trump has come along He's taken it to a new level of American fascism. He's unleashed the, the, the worst, ugliest forces in our country that were sort of under the surface because they, they didn't have a champion who got press every day and who had uh, tweets every other minute all over the country. Uh, so, yes, the threat of American fascism is very real. You can't say they're jokes when he says, I'll be a dictator just on the first day, he has threatened revenge and prosecution against anyone who's criticized him in the military, including his uh, chief of staff, 
former General John Kelly, former Secretary of Defenses. He's just drooling and dripping with hate. And he's predicted riots in the streets if he loses the election by his terms, stolen election. There's no election he can run in that if he doesn't win is not stolen. He's led the insurrection against Congress. He's escaped the rule of law as a business crook and as a court, as a political crook in ways that entitle him to teach a law school seminar on how to escape the rule of law and continue business as usual. And now his lawyers are delaying all these cases for criminal indictments in the courts in Washington, Georgia, Florida, New York. A very perilous time. Uh, as far as how people vote, I say to people, vote your conscience, period. Once you start voting least worst, you're going to get least worst worse every four years, again and again. So you vote your conscience. You can make up your own mind. There are other third parties. You can vote right in. You can stay home. But I would urge you to express your vote in some way rather than stay home. You ran for president four times. Is the deck of playing cards still the same for third-party candidates as what you encountered? And what do you think of the Cornell West candidacy? For the most part, the answer is yes. There are some state laws blocking ballot access that have been diluted and reformed. But by and large, it's harder to get on a ballot in the U.S. if you're a third-party or independent candidate than any European or Canadian or Japanese society requires. If you block candidates from giving more voices and choices on the ballot to the American voter, you are basically limiting the meaning of that American voter's decision. So candidate rights are very inextricably related to voter rights. Cornel West, he's good on so many issues. He's so eloquent. He doesn't have an organization. He hasn't raised much money. He'll, he'll get probably on 15 state ballots that are pretty easy to get on. And, and most of those states are blue states. I don't see him being an electoral force, but I, I see if he's given a chance in the media, which is doubtful, uh, of being an agenda-shifting uh, force of modest levels. A lot of young people are really turned off by the choices that they're being offered, tweedledy-dum or tweedledy-dee. But as things stand now, uh, who do you handicap for the November election? You know, notice it's just, I'm using a horse racing term. I should say, as a Green Party candidate, looking from the outside, an independent candidate twice for the presidency, that the Democrats should landslide the Republicans. This is the worst Republican Party in history on steroids. Teddy Roosevelt, Senator Robert Taft, Dwight Eisenhower, they couldn't believe how ignorant, stupid, crooked, voter-suppressive, anti-children, anti-women, anti-worker, pro-Wall Street, pro-endless war the Republicans are. And if they can't beat a party that is openly undermining the livelihoods of workers and women and children and 
moving to reduce corporate tax burdens to near zero, regardless of the profit these big companies make, and to lifting the health and safety regulations that keep these companies from killing, injuring, and sickening the American people, and wanting to take tens of millions of people off Medicaid and, and Obamacare. I mean, if you can't beat a party like that, you better look at yourself in the mirror, Democratic Party. You better start becoming more authentic. You better start connecting with labor unions more and connecting with people who aren't voting because they're despaired that voting means nothing to them and and they don't want to take part in it. And get out to vote in the neighborhoods and the communities and the housing projects and, and stop putting ads on TV that are irritating due to their repetition and emptiness because your political media advisors who have corporate clients at the same time get 15% of the television radio buy and don't want to advise the candidates to put the money into ground game, get out the vote. We know it has to be done. Go to winningamerica.net, folks, and you'll see the entire agenda and program that we laid out in 2022. we got to wake up to where we're all on the same side and we all bleed the same color, regardless of red state, blue state. We all want the same thing for our families, for our community, for our schools. Uh, we'll have disagreements, but fundamentally, we want clean air, clean water, honest elections, honest government, good public transit. We want the climate to be attended to. We want to protect our children and grandchildren. We want healthy environments, uh, all these things. But unless we rise to the occasion and develop a left-right collaboration, you've got an unbeatable political force. On February 27, 1934, in the small Connecticut town of Winstead, a child was born to Rose and Nathra Nader. Happy 90th birthday, Ralph. Thank you, David. You were just listening to Ralph Nader on corporate autocracy, fascism, Trump, and the election. I talked with him in February on the eve of his 90th birthday. A legendary figure, Ralph Nader has spent a lifetime fighting on behalf of ordinary people. Life magazine ranked him as one of the most influential Americans of this era. This program is produced by Alternative Radio based in Boulder, Colorado. We're an independent nonprofit in our 38th year. We're supported solely by individuals just like you. We feature voices rarely heard in the corporate media, such as Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz, Chris Hedges, Arundhati Roy, and Noam Chomsky. And we have a series of programs with Ralph Nader. To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website, alternativeradio.org. Again, our website where we are podcasting, alternativeradio.org. For copies of today's program, Ralph Nader on Corporate Autocracy, Fascism, Trump, and the Election, call us 1-800-444-1977. That's 1-800-444-1977. Or go online, our website, alternativeradio.org. 
That's alternativeradio.org. Printed transcripts, PDFs, and MP3s of this program are free of charge. Just call us, 1-800-444-1977. Joe Ritchie is our general manager and editor. I'm David Barsamian. Thank you for listening.